This is the fourth week in a conversation about the anointings. Actually, the last week, we're going to conclude the series today. And over the last few weeks, we've talked in detail about what the anointing is, our collective and personal pursuit of the anointing, the power behind the anointing. And in this series, we've titled it, The Flies in the Ointment, based out of a phrase from Ecclesiastes chapter 10, where the writer says, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So the fly in the ointment is like the ink stain on a new shirt. It's that little thing that spoils the value of the whole thing. It's the thing that gets in the way. And last week, we talked in detail about the flies, the little things that repel the anointing in our life. Today, I want to do the opposite. I want to talk to you about the five things that will actually attract the anointing toward your life, the five ingredients of an anointed life. I want us to go back to where we started the conversation first week. I read out of Exodus 30. I want to read there again, but I intentionally skipped some of the details of Exodus 30. I wanted to save them for today where God actually tells Moses specific spices that he wants included in the the creation of the sacred anointing oil. And I want to read that today out of Exodus 30. Pay attention to the key spices God chooses. Exodus 30 verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, collect choice spices, 12 and a half pounds of pure myrrh, six and a quarter pounds of fragrant cinnamon, cinnamon, six and a half pounds of fragrant calamus, 12 and a half pounds of cassia, as measured by the weight of the sanctuary shekel. Also get one gallon of olive oil. Like a skilled incense maker, blend these ingredients to make a holy anointing oil. I want to make a little point on each spice. In ancient, the ancient Eastern world, These spices, these fragrances actually were synonymous with character traits and personal qualities. So I don't want you to overlook the intentionality of the spices that God told Moses to include in the ingredients of the anointing oil. The first one is myrrh, and it's synonymous with meekness. Myrrh is a fragrance that comes from the trunk of the Kamaphora tree in Arabia. It's literally harvested by wounding the tree. And where the bark is penetrated, the tree bleeds a sap known as myrrh gum. And it's said that when the tree is bleeding the sap, it is crying myrrh tears. The fragrance that comes from the wounding and the tears makes expensive perfumes. This is why myrrh is a symbol of meekness and submission. Because from its brokenness and surrender to the process comes something incredibly beautiful. One of the most important ingredients of an anointed life is meekness and submission to God's will. And contrary to what a lot of people think, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power under control. It is strong but gentle, reverent and humble. Meekness is selfless devotion to God and surrender to his purposes. It's the total opposite of pride. Meekness is not passivity but controlled power. It is strength that's been bridled by wisdom, faith, and maturity. It's wholehearted surrender to the Holy Spirit. Meekness has never been more embodied in the human flesh than in the person of Jesus Christ. He's God. 
He has the power of life and death in his tongue. He could have dispatched angels to rescue him. But time and again, he submitted himself to scorn and ridicule and even death to remain obedient to the Father's plan. It was meekness, power under control, strength submitted to the authority of God. Meekness is like a dam that corrals a raging river that wants to flow wild and wide, but the the dam forces the river to produce hydroelectricity. It's a bridle that harnesses the power of our inner lives. It's submitting and surrendering all that you have in obedience to God. And when you do, your life becomes a magnet attracting the anointing. We all know that Moses was a gifted man raised as the prince of Egypt in the house of Pharaoh, but he was banished to the backside of the desert by God to sit under the tutelage of his father-in-law and be shaped by the hand of the Spirit so that layers of privilege and pride could be stripped from him so he could become a vessel fit for the master's use. And through the wounding and brokenness of 40 years of waiting, tears of meekness and maturity began to flow through Moses' life and he eventually became a man whose life attracted the anointing. Today, people want instant success. They want everything immediately. But it took 40 years for Moses to move from operating in his own giftedness to operating in an anointing born out of his meekness. There's a big difference between gifting and anointing. Gifting will fill a room and entertain a crowd, but the anointing will break the yoke of bondage and set people free. So here's the question. Are you being entertained by gifting or are you being changed by anointing? Far too many popular Christian personalities are leading people more to their brand than they are to their God. We have a generation into pageantry and the parade of personal charisma, but the anointing that breaks the yoke comes through private crushing, not through public parading. The degree that you're willing to allow yourself to be crushed and changed is the degree that God is going to be able to use you. Now, I want to talk a little more about the crushing in a moment. But we have to find ourselves moved to a place of meekness, a place of total submission to God in his ways. And then and only then will we attract the anointing toward our lives. The second spice that God mentions is, is in the ingredients of the anointing is cinnamon. And it's synonymous with uprightness. Cinnamon actually comes from a tree that grows 30 to 40 feet high. And what is remarkable about this tree is that it actually grows straight up. It grows so straight that there is not a single crook or curve or a knot anywhere in most of the trees. They are literally upright. So the second ingredient of an anointed life is uprightness, literally how you stand But it's not an issue of your physical posture. It's an issue of the posture of your heart. So when I talk about standing upright, I'm not talking about acting like a self-righteous jerk looking down on unspiritual people around you who are not as pure as you think you are. Being upright is a heart issue. It's standing for truth and righteousness even if you have to stand alone. And when you take a stand to honor God's name, his word, his church, and his kingdom, his Anointing is drawn toward your life. There's 
a quote attributed to the great reformer, the catalyst of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther. He was asked this question, don't you know that the whole world seems to be against you? Martin Luther replied, good, then I'm against the whole world. There will come a time in your life, and more of those days are coming for the church, probably sooner rather than later, when you'll have to have a divine backbone and take a stand for what is biblically right. And in that moment, it won't matter what public opinion says. It won't matter what your friend group says. It can't matter what they're whispering about you behind your back, out of the corner of their mouths. You have to be upright. You have to take a stand for what is right. And I make you a promise. When you walk in obedience to his word, when you honor his name, when you take an upright stand, the anointing of the spirit will be attracted to your life. The Bible says in Hebrews 11, There was a time in Moses' life when he had to make a decision to do what was right or wrong. He made the right decision, and it cost him everything. Listen to me. Right and easy are rarely the same thing. We try to parent our kids and encourage them to do right, and we tell them, if you just make all the right choices, it will go well with you. Listen, that's not the truth. Joseph made the right choice, and he wound up in prison. Rarely is the right thing the easy thing. And Moses did the hard thing and said no to Egypt and yes to God. The Bible describes it this way in Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. There comes a moment in every one of our lives, there's got to be a definitive yes or a definitive no, where you have to take a stand on the promises of God or not. And in that moment, you will either have a living faith or a dying faith. And when you choose to take an upright stand and express a living faith, the anointing is drawn to you in those life-defining moments. The third spice God instructs Moses to include in the anointing oil is calamus. Some translations say sweet cane. It's anonymous with humility. The cane or calamus was a fragrant reed that grew in swampy areas, kind of like a cattail that we would see. And it actually had a head at the top that would fill with oil. And they knew it wasn't ready to be harvested until the head was so heavy with oil that it literally bent over to the place that it almost touched the ground. It's this image of bending over or stooping low in humility. There's probably no single greater ingredient to an anointed life than humility. And you might be saying, well, pastor, you did that already. You talked about meekness in point one. Haven't you already covered humility? Yeah, that's the mistake a lot of people make. They think meekness and humility are the same thing. They're not. Meekness is a public trait. Humility is a private one. Meekness is power under control in public. Meekness is bridled strength in public, but that public strength is born out of deep private humility. You can never be publicly meek without being authentically humble. You probably heard me say this, but it's worth repeating. Jesus's ministry wasn't about titles. It was about towels, the servant's towel. 
Listen to John describe a moment at the Last Supper in the life of Jesus. John 13, 3, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. Don't let that fall on deaf ears. He, he knew he had been given authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So, because he had been anointed and given authority over everything, he got up from the table took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. Now, if you read that through cultural lenses, you're going to say, hold on, hold up a minute. That doesn't make sense. Jesus had been given authority over everything. So that, doesn't that mean he can just coast now? Doesn't that mean he has special perks and privileges and corner offices and titles? Doesn't that mean he's got authority over everything? That he ought to have people waiting on him hand and foot? No. What Jesus displays for us in this room is the very act of true leadership. He had been given authority, and because he had been given authority, he bowed low. He takes the position of the lowest servant in the room and begins to wash the dirty feet of fishermen and carpenters, and I will add, and betrayers, because Judas was in the room. Our culture thinks if you've got authority or a title or a corner office, you are entitled to perks and privileges. But the humility of servant leadership, the gospel, Jesus, turns that on its head because true leaders are the humblest servants in the room. So if you've got ambitions and you want to be great, and you want to do it the Jesus way, you want to do it the kingdom way, then on your pursuit of greatness, you better bring your basin, you better bring your towel, you better bring your water and stoop low to do the dirty work. Because if you're not willing to bend low in humility, you will never be exalted by God for anything. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 23, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. God and his anointing is drawn toward humility. The fourth ingredient of the sacred anointing oil was cassia. It is synonymous with inner cleansing. Cassia is a spice made from the bark of an evergreen tree in the Eastern world. There are hundreds of different kinds of those trees and hundreds of different versions of cassia. But one of the products that comes from cassia is senna. Now, you may not recognize that, but some of you older saints, while you may not recognize cassia or senna, you are very familiar with the common product made out of cassia or senna uh, by its street name. Now, the young folks won't know this, but the older ones will. Castor oil is made out of cassia and senna oil. My grandfather told me stories about castor oil. He said that he couldn't go around his house playing sick to try to skip school when there was castor oil in the house because if he got up and said, Mama, I don't feel good, his mama would say, Come here, boy, let me give you some of this castor oil. If you're sick, it'll make you well. If you're playing me, it'll make you sick. And he said she'd literally pour it down me. And he said, I'm telling you, when it got in your stomach, it wasn't long until it was coming out both ends. It literally cleaned you out. Cassia is synonymous with inner cleansing. Listen, if you want the anointing in your life, you're going to have to throw some cassia into your anointing. There are going to have to be moments of deep 
personal evaluation, reflection, and inner cleansing where everything inside of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, is brought to the cross, brought to the altar where you say to God like David, search me and know me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Lord, I need an inner cleansing because before it's a deed, it's a thought. Before it's an action, it's an attitude. So cleanse me, search me, know my inner thoughts, and change me. So when's the last time you stopped long enough to do a deep spiritual inventory on your life? I'm not talking about comparing yourself to other people. There's always somebody out there worse than you are that make you feel better about where you are right now. I'm talking about comparing yourself to the standard of the word of God, comparing yourself against the backdrop of God's holiness. When's the last time you stopped deeply to reflect I have a feeling there's not a one of us in this room, if we did that, would not find a need to clean out the study room of our minds, the the dining room of our appetites, the workshop of our talents, to clean up the playroom of our pleasures, our pastimes, and our entertainments. The prophet Malachi said this about God in Malachi 3, for he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes, he will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. If we come to God with a repentant heart and we truly want our lives to be more like him, he will be the fire that purges the inside and the soap that bleaches us clean on the outside. He will make us righteous. Listen, A clean heart attracts the anointing. This is what Peter preached about on the day of Pentecost. He said this in Acts 3. Now repent of your sin and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. The Lord is drawn to a repentant heart, a clean heart. It attracts the anointing. Here's the fifth and final ingredient God told Moses to use in the anointing oil, olive oil, which is synonymous with the Holy Spirit. From the front cover to the back cover of your Bible, the oil, the olive oil is a symbol of the Spirit. There is no anointing without the Spirit's indwelling in our lives. If you look in Acts 2, it's the day of Pentecost. There was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on 120 spiritually hungry, expectant followers of Jesus who were held up in a 10-day prayer meeting seeking more of God. And what God did in that room so powerfully changed them that even the coward, Peter, who had denied Christ, emerges from that 10-day experience, that outpouring of the Spirit, and boldly preaches the message he had fearfully denied. As a matter of fact, as Peter and John were leaving the temple, they come up on a lame man and make this statement in Acts 3, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. The lame man gets up and walks. It created such a commotion that Peter and John were arrested. They were brought before the authorities. They wanted to imprison them, but all the authorities knew that that lame man had been lame since, since they, they had known him, since he was a boy. And now they couldn't deny he's walking around. So because of that, they had to dismiss them. But when they sent them away, they outlawed the preaching of the name of Jesus. No more public conversations about this name. So Peter and John go back with the same people that had been filled with the Spirit in Acts 2. They get back with the company of believers and they go into another prayer meeting. This is what Acts 4 says. Peter and John said this and as they prayed. And now, O Lord, here are the threats 
Give us, your servants, great boldness in preaching your word. Stretch out your hand with healing power. May miraculous signs and wonders be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, this is the very next verse. Watch this. After this prayer, the meeting place shook, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they preached the word of God with boldness. This is what I want you to see. These are the same people that were in the outpouring in Acts 2. We're less than two chapters later. They're already in another prayer meeting asking God to fill them again with the power of the Spirit. You have to see, they were not satisfied. They were hungry for more. They wanted God to touch them again. Do you know why some people are stuck in the past? They seem to be reminiscing all the time about the good old days when it comes to church. You know why people do that? Because they haven't had a fresh encounter with God. Their entire life is calibrated around 1960 or 1940 or 2005. They're living in a memory of a past experience, living on yesterday's manna. Listen to me. He's still alive. He's still anointing people, empowering people, filling people. And I would say even more now than ever. God said through the prophet Joel, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The probability of his spirit empowering you is greater today than it was in 1960 because we're closer to the coming of the Lord. Now is the time. This is the hour. So don't live on yesterday's manner. Don't live on stale bread. We need a fresh anointing from the Holy Spirit. Listen, I want you to lean in and listen closely for the next few moments. We're going to conclude the service in a few moments in a time of communion. But I want our hearts to be right. And I want to give us a few moments to get our hearts right. In the very first week of this series, I made this statement. The anointing comes from crushing. There is no olive oil without the crushing of the olive. There is no wine, new wine, without the crushing of the grapes. And you have to understand the fragrance of any of the spices, no good quality of any of the spices that were included in the anointing oil would have ever been released without the crushing of the cinnamon and all of those other spices. Olive oil is made from an olive press and it does exactly what its name says it does. It presses the olive to make the oil. And I think that's the imagery that Paul had in mind when he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4. We are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. Now, I'm using the word crush and press the same. Pressing the olive, crushing the olive. When Paul uses the word crush, he's saying, we're going to be pressed, but we're not going to be killed. God's not going to let this kill you. He's going to let something good come out of this adversity you're going through. He says, we are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we are not destroyed. Through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be seen in our bodies. And most of you know exactly what I'm describing, what Paul is describing. It's when you wonder if you have what it takes to survive. It's when the doctor calls you and says, yeah, I don't want to talk about the test results over the phone. I want to come in and talk about them in person. It's when the teacher sends you one of those emails about your child. Or when someone you love closes their heart to you and turns their back on you. Or when you feel so utterly incapable or unable or afraid or unworthy. When you're in seasons like that, you wonder where God is in all of this. And I can tell you, he may not be the author of your adversity, 
But he will use the pressure and the pressing of the adversity to squeeze fresh oil and anointing out of your life, just like he did with Moses. He doesn't waste our pain. He uses it if we will let him to mature us and shape us to become the kind of people that attract the anointing. Meek, upright, humble, with the clean heart and full of the spirit. The valuable component of the grape is the new wine. The most valuable component of the olive is the oil. But the value doesn't come until the crushing happens. As a matter of fact, both the grape and the olive, if left in that state, will ruin quickly. The only way to preserve them is to crush them. So you have to understand God is not allowing these things in your life to destroy you. He's trying to preserve you. He's trying to make you the kind of person that attracts his anointing. I want to show you a video. I was in Israel in 2017. I'm actually on the northeast coast of the Sea of Galilee in the little village of Katsreen where there is an actual ancient olive press still today. And I want to show you the video, but I want to give you a fair warning. I shaved my head right after this video, so I have hair in this video, okay? A lot of it. I still have the same hair follicles today. I just don't like hair, all right? So I shaved my head right after this video. So I, I, I know you're going to look at it and go, oh, wow, he's got hair. So don't forget, okay, we broke that. You know that now. So forget the hair and listen to what I say, all right? Watch this. I'm in the ancient village of Katsurin on the northeast end of the Sea of Galilee. There was an ancient Jewish settlement here, and this has been rebuilt to mirror a village life in times right after the time of Jesus. And this particular machine is a crushing machine that would replicate very much the process of extracting a pulp from an olive in the times of Christ. And then just beyond that is an olive press, which is how the oil came about. These images are synonymous with the moments in our life where crushing and pressing takes place. We don't like those moments, they're painful. It's in those moments that we question the nature and character of God. It's in that moment that we question whether there's any value or purpose in our pain. I wonder at times if it's in these moments and seasons of injustice that our faith is put to the greatest test, and yet it's in these moments that our faith is experiencing its preservation. This is a process, the production of olives to turn them into something of value. There are stages in this process, crushing and pressing in order to preserve and bring forth value. This entire process is synonymous with the process of what God is doing in our own lives. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said, I am persecuted but not abandoned, cast down but not destroyed. I am pressed but not crushed. And yet it's the pressing and the crushing in our lives that God uses to preserve us. The greatest value from the olive is the oil. And this is where the oil is made. And I just want you to know and understand that as the pressure of persecution and suffering and the heartache and betrayal and all the things that are going on in your life at this moment that makes you feel like God has abandoned you, they're just the opposite. He is in the middle of it with you, promising to take all the things that you're going through and use them for good. 
for His glory and your benefit. Let me challenge you to surrender to the process of the pressing. Let God root out bitterness, pride, sin, and selfishness. And turn us into meek, humble, upright, servant-hearted, spirit-filled people that attract His anointing. A beautiful symbol of the crushing is the communion symbol. I want you to grab yours, if you will, and... If you don't have one in the next few minutes, you want to participate with us in communion, um, we're going to have team members move about the building and, and serve those of you that may have missed out on getting them when you came in. We have an open communion. It means if you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to participate. But I'm actually going to, we're going to sing a song that connects to the theme of this message today. And I want you to let the words of that song prepare you. Listen, this bread and this cup is the fruit of the crushing of Jesus. The cross was his olive press. The cross was his wine press. In this cup is the fruit of the pressing, the blood that he shed, the brokenness of his body. What I want you to do is you reflect on the depth of his sacrifice out of love for you, that it will humble you. It will soften your heart. It will cause you to want more of him and to be more bold for him because of the sacrifice that was paid for you. Let this be a moment of deep, personal reflection, repentance, softening of your heart, and make the words of this song your prayer, and we'll come back and take these things together in just a moment. Would you take the bread? Father, I just pray over this moment. I ask you to, to take this, this symbol of your brokenness, and may all that is provided to your church through your brokenness be ours. In the same way you were broken and served for us, may we let our lives be broken and served for you. Would you anoint us and empower us? Let us be your currency. You were spent for us. May we be spent for you. Lord, let our, your brokenness be our wholeness today. Bless the bread to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the bread. Lord, I hold in my hand the cup, and I don't know that we've ever thought about it in this light, but this cup is the fruit of the wounding. It is the mergum, the tears that you shed. This, this is the crushing, the beauty that came from your brokenness. It's the proof that you will bring beauty out of our own brokenness, life out of death, joy out of sorrow, gladness in place of mourning, that's why the songwriter said there is power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Will you cover us today with the fruit of your sorrow, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, and bring life and hope where there is death and hopelessness. Cleanse sin. Change us forever. Empower your church through your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, Lord, will you bless the cup to your church. Amen. Would you take the cup? Thank you, Lord. Would you stand with me all over this place today? 
If you want to just sit and linger in this moment this morning, you're welcome to do that. You don't have to rush out of this. This is a sacred moment. We encourage you to take your time. But I do want to speak a blessing and benediction over you today. There's so much more richness to this song. The team is going to sing it in this moment. I just Let me speak a blessing. Father, I bless them and keep them. Ask you to make your face shine down upon them. I ask you to be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction, Lord, and give them peace. And let us be a people that walk out of here today with fresh oil and new wine, living lives that attract your anointing. In Jesus' name.